Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. I have a few announcements, by the way. Let me get to those at the end. And if you just, if I forget, flag me down and say, Hey Rick, what about those all-important announcements? There is one that's very important. Alright, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the thirtieth year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Butzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. Within it there were figures resembling resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each one had the face of a man. And all four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. And wherever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went, and whenever those stood still, these stood still, and whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight toward one another. And each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, 
like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse, there was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw... I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Everyone needs a vision. Proverbs 29.18 Where there is no vision... The people perish. We all need some sense of where we're going, where we're headed, what the next few days or weeks or months or years has before us. Without a vision, we get lost in ourselves. Without a vision, life becomes humdrum. Jacob had a vision. He saw God at Penuel, Genesis 32, verse 30, and his life was changed forever. Jacob became Israel. Moses communed with God in amazing vision and amazing intimacy. Exodus 33.11 talks about that. Moses, when he came into the presence of God, when he had visions of the glory of God, was forever changed, irrevocably altered. He looked different. Isaiah came along and he said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. And Isaiah was set to prophesy for life. The Apostle Paul's vision of Jesus was so impactful, he would refer to it again and again. His witness, his testimony, was the vision of Jesus on that Damascus road. And John, the last prophet of Scripture, he wrote in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. John, no doubt, referring to the transfiguration. Referring to that moment when he and Peter and, and James saw Jesus transfigured in glory before them. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I saw that. And of course, how could he know? that he would see the glory of God in a way unimaginable before he died. Turning your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. Is this sounding familiar? 
And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John saw the resurrected, glorified Jesus. In that revelation, you know, the, the, the Romans thought to banish John, get him out of the way, silence him, stick him off on the island of Patmos out there in the Aegean Sea, leave him to himself and to his craziness. And John gets the revelation. And that revelation then is sent as a letter to seven churches dispersed among the churches and becomes, listen, it becomes the vision of the church. A vision that far too many churches today don't look at anymore. Don't read. Don't consider. We're going to have to because as you go through Ezekiel, Ezekiel and John are like parallel books. Same with Daniel. Daniel is the key to understanding Revelation. And so as we head into this season of prophecy, if you will, with Ezekiel and then with Daniel, we're going to be in the book of Revelation quite a bit because it's the vision for the church. This is our vision. This is our future. This is what God has given us to keep our eyes on, to keep our eyes open, our spirits bright, our understanding clear. This is what is coming. We too will see Jesus just as John did. But long before that, back in Ezekiel, The prophet saw the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel's vision of God's glory there in the heavenly place, in the throne room, carried him his entire ministry. He will refer to it no less than four times in the book of Ezekiel, referring back to this vision that so enraptured him, so captivated his eyes, his spirit. Twenty years into his ministry, Ezekiel will write in Ezekiel 43, verse 2, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming in from the way of the east, and His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. Speaking, by the way, of the return of Christ. We'll get there. And Ezekiel 43, verse 3, he says, It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city, and the visions which were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar... And I fell on my face. So 20 years later, he remembers that original vision again. Speaking of it for the fourth time. Falling on his face again, just as he did 20 years before. Which tells us something, as we mature, as we age in Christ, he is no less stunning 20 years down the line as he is the moment you first see him. He is no less amazing, astounding You are still awestruck in the presence of Jesus. I am here 40 years into my walk with Christ and I am more amazed today than I was then. Still wanting to fall on my face before Him. Still amazed by His presence, by the pictures of His glory as we see even in Scripture. And I realized studying this week, and I told a couple of people, boy, Jeremiah was good, but it was hard It was hard study because there's so much judgment. Ezekiel has been already such a wonder, such a blessing. And I began to ask the Lord, Lord, why just one chapter of Ezekiel am I feeling more caught up, more excited than I did through the entire book of Jeremiah? What's the difference? And what the Lord showed me is simply this. The vision of God's glory is my strength. 
I am strengthened by looking at Him. The joy of the Lord, Scripture tells us, is my strength. And just to see Him and to consider Him and to think about Jesus, it lifts us up. It's an encouraging, remarkable thing. Ezekiel's name means God strengthens. God strengthens. Remember that as we go throughout the book. Because the heavenly vision that carries Ezekiel gives him strength and ultimately is going to bring strength to the people in exile. God strengthens. Everyone needs a vision. And God's Word gives us, unlike any book ever written in the library of history, gives us a clear vision. God's Word tells us where we're going. God's Word tells us what's coming. Thankfully, God's Word lets us know how to get there. And best of all, the Word of God tells us who is up ahead. Who are we headed to? It's been said, if the heart, if your heart needs to be set on fire by the revelation and the character uh, and the glory of God, read Ezekiel. I find that intriguing because as we ended up lamentations, we ended up talking about for the last two Sundays, the nature and the character of God. If you want that to be sealed to your heart, if you want that to burn in your heart, to create passion in your heart, read Ezekiel. Good timing. Ezekiel was one of three heavy hitters during the Jewish captivity. Let me give you a little background before we go on into the book. Three heavy hitters, all prophesying at the same time. In fact, the prophecy was so rich and so full and so thick during the days of Ezekiel, it was only paralleled one other time in Hebrew history, and that was in the days of Isaiah. When at the same time, Micah and Hosea and Amos and even Jonah were all prophesying. A number of prophets prophesying the coming days for Israel and for Judah, warning them, talking about what was happening, all of these guys at the same time. Well, then you fast forward about 100, 150 years, and suddenly along comes Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the oldest of the three primary heavy-hitting prophets of this day, Jeremiah prophesying in Judah, as we've just studied through, up to and after its tragic end, And Jeremiah's message, and the reason for the heaviness, was his primary message was the judgment of the Lord. It was a critical message for us to study and read and understand. But it's a hard one. The judgment of the Lord. Well, Daniel came next. Daniel was taken into exile before Ezekiel. And so he prophesied in Babylon, and Daniel's primary message that we'll get to was the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom of the Lord. And it's an awesome vision. Ezekiel's the youngest of the three. He prophesied in Babylon his message, his vision, was not the judgment of the Lord, nor was it the kingdom of the Lord. His message to us and to his people in the day is and was the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is the primary message of the book of Ezekiel. This is what we are looking forward to. Maybe that's why Ezekiel's book is called the most colorful of the entire Hebrew Scriptures. It is filled with all manner of ways of describing and declaring the glory of God. There are dreams here. There are visions. There's poetry, prose, history, end times prophecy, allegory, parable, proverbs, elegies, rhetorical questions, repetitious phrases, all of this adding to an exhilarating book, an energetic prophecy. But I want to remind you that as exciting as it will be at times, 
Don't forget that behind the prophetic mysticism, if you will, of the book of Ezekiel is a very, very personal message. And the personal message is this. You're going to hear it 24 times in 48 chapters. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is God's message. It was His message to Israel and to Judah. It is His message today. It has not changed. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Lord, why do you do the things that you do in my life? That you will know that I am the Lord. Lord, how could you allow this tragic fall of Jerusalem for the Jewish people? That they will know that I am the Lord. Lord, are you really going to restore them? After all they did to you? Why? That they will know that I am the Lord. As bookends, listen to the first time God says it and the last time God says it here in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 7. The first statement. The slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 37, verse 13, the last time. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. That's marvelous to me. How cool is that? The slain are going to fall among you. You'll know that I'm the Lord. And when I've raised you up from the grave, you will know that I am the Lord. He's on both ends of it. The one is judgment. The next one is glory. It's kingdom. It's promise. It's future. Ezekiel 37 is in the midst of that amazing vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Not going to do that this morning. But that's coming. So the vision that we're talking about here is not of a place or time. And if you need a vision for your life, and you do, it is not of a time. It is not of an accomplishment. It is not of what you are going to do. The vision we need is of a person. Because the personal message of the Lord is that you will know me. He gives it to a captive audience because this message comes to the exiles in Babylon. They ain't going nowhere. And so the Lord takes this time during the 70 year captivity to speak into the lives of the exiles. To say, I want you to know me. The reason you're here is that you will know me. That you will know me. And again, that message has not changed in 2,500 years. Jesus said in John 17.3, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because, you see, to know Jesus is to know God. To know the Father is to know the Son. They are one and the same. And to know Him, it's knowing Jesus. To know Jesus is knowing God. Keep this ever in mind. Because this is the point of all Bible prophecy. People can get off in all kinds of tangents when it comes to the teaching of prophecy. Get real excited because prophecy is in and of itself an exciting thing. Whoa, future visions, things that are coming. How did they know? Nostradamus. How did he get one-tenth of all of his prophecies right? You know, people get so excited and charged up by it, but the point of Bible prophecy is to know Jesus. And if we forget that, then we get off on the weird stuff and the bizarre tangents and out into the strange places. That's when the strange fire enters into the church, when the church starts losing sight of Jesus and starts looking at all these other mystical things. It's about knowing Him. 2 Corinthians 4.6, I think a key verse here this morning, is for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's where we go to see His glory. Glory of God in the face of Christ. You okay, Jim? There's animals out there. Yes, there are. How long have you been going here? Yeah, and they will and they will come in by the way. So you're on it? Okay. Sheep coming to church. What's that all about? Where were we? Revelation 19.10, and here's the key verse of all Bible prophecy. It is the one that locks it all together. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why do we study prophecy? That we may know Him, that we may see Jesus. To see and know Jesus is to know that He is the Lord. And this all begins in a far off place. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the 30th year on the 5th day of the 4th month. While I was by the river Kabar among the exiles. The river Kabar. And it literally means far off. The river far off. It is a fitting name, I believe, for a Hebrew refugee camp there in Babylon. By the river far off. They are in a faraway place, far away from their land. Exiled in a place that they don't know. The river Kabar was a man-made canal. We know this, it ran off of the, it was an offshoot of the Euphrates River, and it was an offshoot to water the lands. It was an agricultural canal, and so there at this common agricultural canal in what is Iraq today, the Hebrew exiles built a life for a short amount of time. Ezekiel was there. We're told that the heavens were open, he says, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month in the on the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. So it's, it's interesting. People read the first couple of verses and the chronology might seem confusing. Because verse 1, he starts off saying, in the thirtieth year of the fifth day of the fourth month. And then in verse 2, he says, on the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin. So what's he talking about here? What's going on? What is this thirtieth year? It's actually very simple. And very precise. One of the things you'll enjoy about Ezekiel, different than Jeremiah, is chronologically, Ezekiel just lays it down. He's extremely precise. He lets you know when things are happening. We can date most of the visions and the events of the book of Ezekiel based on what he said. Actual dating can occur. And I'll give you some dates here in just a second. But understand this 30th year is, well, it's Ezekiel's 30th year. The book begins when he turns 30. He receives his vision as he turns 30 years old. Verse 2 clarifies this a bit, saying the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. So that's the exact chronology. Ezekiel is he's distinct in this. Now let me give you the three most important dates around which this prophecy took place. 597 B.C., before the prophecy happened, Ezekiel was taken from Jerusalem into exile. He went into exile with King Jehoiachin and his company, King Coniah. Ezekiel was part of that group, carried off 10,000 Hebrews, taken into exile. Ezekiel at that time was 25 years old. Five years later, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin, in 593 B.C. is when Ezekiel saw this heavenly vision in chapter 1 that we just read. First vision of Ezekiel. And, as we'll go on in chapter 1, 2, and 3 to read Wednesday night... 
This is where he heard his earthly call. So 597, taken into exile. 593, he hears his prophetic call. And in 571 B.C., Ezekiel will see his final vision. And his final vision is of the millennial temple. A temple that has never been built. A temple that has never before been seen on planet earth. Ezekiel 40-48, through 48, eight chapters, talking about the future of Israel, a new temple for Israel, the allotment of land for the people of Israel. And I don't know how anybody reading the promise of Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 can say that Israel is a has-been nation. Rick, you're really going off on that. I know. (laughs) I feel it so passionately because as we said during worship, Israel is proof positive of the faithfulness of God. If Israel falls, the faithfulness of God falls. And those who would try to separate the two are not reading Scripture and taking it at face value. They're reading in tradition or perhaps reading in their own sense of what should be as opposed to what is. Well, back to the book. Ezekiel will prophesy across 22 years. And that's what we're going to see in this book. By the way, there's good reason that Ezekiel was called to ministry at the age of 30. All priests were. That was the priestly age. It's part of the Torah law. Verse 3 tells us, specifically, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. And so he refers to himself as the priest. If you go to Numbers chapter 4, don't do it right now, but you can look through the whole chapter again and again, refers to the beginning of the priesthood, the age that a priest begins his ministry, talking about the Kohathites and the the Gershonites and the Merorites, those three offshoots of the Levites, and how when they turned 30, they began their priestly service. So here's Ezekiel, the priest. He turns 30. No doubt he's been in preparation for his priestly service. And all of a sudden God says, hey, you've been preparing for this. i got something else for you. You're not going to be a priest, Ezekiel. But Lord, that's what I studied in college. <laughs> Lord, that, all my internships were priesthood, priesthood, priesthood. And you're telling me, I, what? I want to give you three significant aspects of heavenly vision this morning. Of living with a heavenly vision that we see here right at the outset of Ezekiel. Applied, I think, over uh, Ezekiel's life and what we see happening to him. And the first aspect of this is preparation. How do you prepare for a visionary life? And that's truly what we're talking about. To be like Ezekiel. Because you can. You can walk and live in a visionary life just like the prophets. Eyes on the glory of God. But how do you prepare for that? Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, was a Levite. And as I said, no doubt spent his life in preparation. Even in captivity, by the way, the priests still would prepare for priesthood. They wouldn't be able to do the functions, obviously, of the temple and the sacrifices, but they still would be the go-to, kind of the pastors of the people. You know, the go-to religious leaders. And even in exile, the priests would still, as much as they could do their priestly service, study Torah law, expound the Torah to the people. And so all this preparation for the priesthood, five years of captivity, and all of a sudden plans change. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Just wondering how many of you have made major life plans only to get broadsided by the Lord. 
You said, I'm going this way, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I prepared for, and the next thing you know, you're heading down a completely different path. You are redirected. And momentarily, you might think, well, wait a minute, my preparation was not for this. My preparation was for that, and now God has me doing this. Understand what Jesus says in John verse chapter 3, verse 8, and what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What does that mean? That you're blind? No. It means you go where the Spirit blows. It means you go where the Spirit leads. And the Spirit may not lead you where you thought you were going. In fact, the Spirit may not lead you where you want to go. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? On the beach there in the Galilee, He said, hey, when you were young, you used to get up and clothe yourself, clothe yourself and go where you want to go. When you're older, someone else is going to clothe you and take you where you do not want to go. And He spoke there of Peter's death. What's the difference? Peter now, filled with the Spirit, is going to go where the Spirit wants him to go. And that's the deal with preparation. Those with a godly life vision soon realize a huge truth. And this is a truth to live by. The immediate will always be trumped by the eternal. We live in the immediate. But it's the eternal that matters. And I know I've said that before, and I'm going to continue saying that because I need to remember that. Because I so quickly forget when I'm out mowing my lawn yesterday, just the front lawn, I'm out mowing it because it was a little high and going back and forth, and I'm realizing, see, in the back of my house, let me explain. In the back of my house, it's all just kind of crab grass and, and whatever. And when I mow that down, I just mow it down to keep it down. I'm not really planting anything back there, just letting the woods do what the woods do. And so when I'm out there, and, and I, I have a, a, we have an arrangement, Rod and Barb and I, with the, the tractor. So I'm on the tractor out there, and the, the tractor shoots the grass out, you know, kind of puts it back to reseed the soil, which is great in the back, because I just want it to be green back there. I forgot about this. And I go out in the front, which is our manicured lawn. And I start across, and there's just grass everywhere. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? I'm back and forth and back and forth. Grass everywhere. All over the... I mean, I'm out there sweeping. And and I had no thought, I'll tell you, during about that hour or two yesterday, no thought of heavenly things. (laughs) I was in the immediate. I wasn't happy about it. And we need the reminder. We've got to be called back to it that the eternal trumps the immediate. And that that's God's vision for us. And that's what He calls us to. And that's what He wants us to think about and be aware of, even when we are mowing the lawn, that eternal things are what matter, not life now. So, prepare for your life, but be prepared for your life to change. I know a girl, knew a girl back in, in high school who was preparing for life as a missionary. She was absolutely certain the Lord was sending her to Africa, and then she met me. <laughs> course, she managed to bring the best of Africa into my house. (laughs) But the last 30 years for Cheryl, my wife, are not what she planned. It is not where she was headed. It's not what she was studying for. It's not what she thought she was going to do. It's been much better. (laughs) That's how God works. He redirects. He focuses us on what He wants us to do. Those who are walking by the Spirit are blown like the wind. You go where the Spirit wants you to go. 
Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter said, Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Note that. He doesn't say make certain about exactly what your life is going to be. He says make certain of your calling. Make sure you remember He chose you. And then in remembering that, you go wherever He wants you to go. Remember you're a called people. You're a chosen person. Your circumstances may change. His calling and His choosing of you does not change. That is ever stable. So be prepared for life, but be prepared for life to change. Ezekiel's mantle immediately changes with a vision. He's wearing the mantle of a priest. He has to take it off now and put on the mantle of a prophet by the river Kabar. And not because of the captivity of man, but because of the revelation of God. And that's the second thing to note here. Preparation, number one. Number two, revelation. Revelation. For all the preparations of life, the real vision requires revelation. Ephesians 1.17, Paul prayed for the Gentile Ephesians. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. How does that work? I think Ezekiel will help us a bit with this because revelation may or may not be ecstatic. It may or may not be emotional. But it will be certain. And please understand this. There is a moment, there's a point when you know that you know that you know the Lord. And if you're in a place right now where you're you're not sure and I'd like to maybe, I think, perhaps, several years ago I, you know, if you're in that place, you need to ask Jesus for revelation of His relationship because that's what He wants for you. He doesn't want any of us to be guessing. The revelation of knowing the Lord. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now that's pretty profound and pretty straightforward. The Spirit lets you know that you know that you know that you belong to Him. Now Ezekiel describes two ways that he received the revelation. One revelation, but two descriptions of it. And I think these are instructive for us. The first one is in verse 1 where he says, The heavens were open and I saw visions of God. That word visions, marah, is used 12 times in the Bible. 11 of those times it is used to describe a supernatural vision like Ezekiel is having. Marah, supernatural vision. The twelfth time, and the only time it's translated this way, it's translated mirror. A mirror. I thought that was interesting. Because applied to the prophets, even though they saw visions, they didn't always understand them. You can stand with a group of people and all look in a mirror, and you can get a sense, at least, of how everybody looks, but you do not know what they're thinking. And you do not know what's behind the facade or behind the picture, or behind what you can see with the naked eye. A mirror. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And that stuns me because Paul says, Now I know in part. And if Paul the Apostle 
says, I only know part of the deal right now. I look at my life and go, for now I know in itty bitty amounts, then I will know fully. But right now we look as if in a mirror dimly. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, As to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And I find that intriguing because in the same way, things aren't always 100% clear to us as to our immediate future, but we have a beautiful eternal vision. And we're right back to the immediate versus the eternal. We can only see so far right now, but God in His grace said, I'm not going to give you the whole picture of your life, but I will give you the future picture of your life. I will open up the heavens that you might see that you are heading somewhere glorious, even if you don't know what's going to happen here tomorrow, or the next day, or the next I can give you Revelation 20, 21, and 22 as certain vision of our future. And it's, it's stunning, it's beautiful. As beautiful as Ezekiel chapter 1, even more so. But even if we read through that, even as we consider the beauty of those visions described for us by Ezekiel and by John, we still find ourselves not completely sure what it's going to be like. We still don't really know. We have some idea. We know in part but we don't fully know. Kind of like Spencer's slides on Wednesday night. If you were here Wednesday, Spence came in, and by the way, did a great job. I, I so enjoyed that. I went home and told Cheryl, I, I just really enjoyed listening to Spencer share his heart about Israel. And he spent that time, and he went through, and there were, I don't know, 80 slides or so, and he just kind of went through talking about those slides and going through it. About halfway through, I, I, I asked you a question. I said, Spencer, can you describe the difference between looking at these slides and actually being there. And I don't even remember exactly what you said, except that you began with... Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was actually the most eloquent moment of the night, right there. <laughs> no, no, no. But I love, the, I love that he stumbled, because that's it. And, and by the way... <laughs> If you want to go, you need to go. You need to sign up. Go ahead and grab one of those Israel flyers. Talk to me about it. We still have a few spots. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, and, and the, the example here is seeing in a mirror dimly, you can look at those slides of Israel. You can look at pictures in a Bible. You can open up and look at you know advertisements. You can go on the news and say, oh yeah, that's Jerusalem. See, I've seen it. I don't have to go there. Totally different. Completely different. You could walk through, and we've done this, a slideshow of the entire trip that we take, and then go on the trip and be absolutely stunned for 11 days. Because to see a picture is not the same as being there. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. We have revelation, we have a vision. I saw it in Marah, he says, but it's like a mirror. It's not exactly, I mean, it's, I'm going to describe it to you wheels. What are these about? We'll talk about that Wednesday night. You know, four-faced angels with eyes everywhere and wings and wheels. What is that? I'm doing my best to describe what I saw, the, the vision. But I can't fully describe it to you other than just to say, here are some words. And that's kind of the idea here with, with Revelation. Until 
you go there, it's not completely clear. One thing is clear. We see what the ancient prophets did not see. Could not see. What they longed to see. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us how? In His Son. In His Son. The vision, the revelation of all the prophetic mystery of the Hebrew Scriptures lands at the feet of Jesus, points to Jesus, and we have the revelation of Jesus... And so we see what they could not see. 1 John 5.20 We know the Son of God has come who has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. Amen. Want to know the true God? Know Jesus. You want eternal life? Know Jesus. He's the deal. What was vague or obscure to the prophets is made absolutely clear to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, a mirror not only makes things uncertain or vague, there's another thing that a mirror does. It reflects what it sees. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, who is Jesus are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You know, you and I, we need to think along these lines. We are no different than Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel. They were just guys. They were just humans. They were no different than you. They had bodily aches. They had to eat. They got tired. They got frustrated. Those who were married, Ezekiel we know was married, I'm sure didn't always get along with his wife. These were just normal guys. And sometimes we can look at a prophet having a vision and go, oh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what would it be like to be Ezekiel? And you could flip that around and he would ask the same question of you. What would it like? What would it be like to be Larry? I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> what would it be like to be Joe? Yay. I can speak Hebrew. <laughs> I can speak Hebrew, but I cannot speak like this guy. <laughs> we are no different. The person who has a true heavenly vision is the person who's had a revelation of God. And Paul says we've had that in the face of Christ. You have the revelation as you look at Jesus. So Ezekiel says, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And by the way, back over in Revelation, this is exactly what happened to John. Listen to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and compare it to what you heard in Ezekiel chapter 1. Revelation 4.1, John writing says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Okay, wait a minute. What did you say, Ezekiel? The heavens were open. John says the heavens are open. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me. Ezekiel, here's a trumpet sound. And said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Where was Ezekiel? In the Spirit. He says, and behold, a throne standing in heaven. What did Ezekiel describe? The throne standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne. John saw the same thing. 
that Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel saw it at the river Kabar. John saw it on the island of Patmos. But it's the same vision. At least it's the same person in vision. Amen. So they see this amazing thing. John saw Jesus. I want you to add this to your vision. I think John in Revelation chapter 4 is absolutely representing the raptured church. Now there are those who disagree with me. They think that that's a stretch. I don't think so. And here's why. Revelation 1 through 3. We see a panorama of the church age. Specifically in chapters 2 and 3. John sees Jesus. Hears Him speaking in Revelation 1. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, these seven letters to seven churches, when you study through that, you realize amazingly it is the church age. It's not just seven letters to seven local churches. It's seven letters to the church across history. And those letters land in certain times throughout the last 2,000 years. And it's an absolutely remarkable thing when, when you begin to realize it and see that. And so, John sees Jesus. And then John is in the church age. And then chapter 4, after these things, suddenly, after the church, John is caught up. A door is open in heaven. A trumpet sounds. John is caught. And suddenly, Revelation 4 and 5, we are in heaven. So whether John is a, a picture of the raptured church or not... I don't see how he can't be because that's exactly what happens to us. We are in the church age. And after the church age, after these things, we are immediately caught up to be in heaven. How do you know that, Rick? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And gang, that day is fast approaching. Had a conversation with my son Hayden just this last week about that, saying, Hayden, you need to understand. You need to realize. It could be tonight. You really talk to your kid that way? Yeah. Because I want his decisions now to be reflected then. I want him making choices now that will impact his life then. Not right now, then. And Jesus could come tonight, this afternoon, tomorrow morning. We have no idea except to say, as I've said before, that all of the prophecies about that have to be fulfilled before the second coming of Christ have been fulfilled. We are in an age where nothing biblically in Hebrew prophecy has yet to happen before Christ comes and is doing it Himself. So that puts us right on the verge. That is a thought I carry every day. There are a lot of parallels between Ezekiel's vision and John's revelation. I'll try to point them out as we go along the way. You may catch some. Keep your eyes open and let's watch for that. But the heavens were open. And he saw visions of God. But there's a second way that Ezekiel describes his revelation. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, The hand of the Lord came upon him. The hand of the Lord came upon him. This is more than seeing. Alright, understand that. There is something that Ezekiel experiences in this revelation. We have just moved from perhaps the mental knowledge or the intellectual understanding of Jesus Christ as we read in the Gospels now to an experiential thing that happens when you come into a revealed revelation, a revealed relationship with Jesus. Something 
happens. Something changes. Something is felt as though the hand of the Lord is upon you. This is how Ezekiel describes it. The hand of the Lord came upon him. It's so strong he feels it. He encounters it. He he wears it, if you will. He uses the phrase seven times in the book of Ezekiel. It's a favorite phrase. And using the phrase, the hand of the Lord, what I believe Ezekiel is clarifying here is that the vision of the revelation that he received was tangible, it was actual, and it was by the Spirit of God. Now this is something he felt, as well as knew, as well as saw, and it was absolutely real, and God breathed. But it's interesting, until the prophet Elijah, every use of the phrase, the hand of the Lord, meant judgment. And severe judgment at that. The hand of the Lord was always opposing an enemy. The hand of the Lord was was meeting out discipline. The hand of the Lord was threatening wrath. But all of a sudden, for the very first time, when the prophet Elijah comes on the scene, it was said, 1 Kings 18.46, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. He girded up his loins. It just means he hiked up his shorts so he could run. Okay? <laughs> he pulled up his robe and tied it up higher so that he could run unfettered. And we're told that the hand of the Lord came upon him and so he outran Ahab to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord gave Elijah super speed. Kind of cool. He was the first speed racer in history. He just took off. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15. We hear it a second time, not used in judgment, but used as for a prophet with Elisha. Elisha, who who was asked to prophesy, and he says, well, alright, bring me now a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Suddenly, this phrase is being used differently. And from that point forward, the hand of the Lord in Scripture began to express power and express the presence of the Holy Spirit. Which tells me that the Holy Spirit has to be present for a heavenly vision to take place. You don't get heavenly vision unless the Holy Spirit is there in person and in power. Deny the Holy Spirit and you deny yourself vision. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 real quickly. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer, pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Stop right there. We will. We will drift away from it if we don't pay attention to it. If we don't pay attention to what we've heard, if we don't remain faithful in the Scriptures, we will drift away from it. It is human nature. There is a rebellious sin nature working against you and working against me that wants to draw us away if for no other reason to cloud our vision. At a minimum to cloud our vision if not to completely trip us up so that we are useless in the kingdom of God and if we are not paying attention to the scriptures we will drift every time. But he says for if the word if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it, that is our salvation, 
after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, watch this, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And God works this way. His Spirit works this way. And I don't have time this morning to jump over to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I encourage you to read that. Study that. Be aware of that. Talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how this all functions in the life of someone who's had the revelation of godly vision. A heavenly vision. But don't misunderstand this. The vision itself is not, is not about seeing signs and wonders and miracles and gifts. And the church has gotten off. See, two directions, and I think you Bible students especially, you're aware of this, two directions where the church has kind of gotten off. One is the direction that denies the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You don't receive heavenly vision without the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Which ironically tells me that those who don't believe the Holy Spirit is active, but know Jesus, have had the Holy Spirit working in their life that they don't even really think is active. That's ironic. They're going to find out someday, wow, you were working in me. Okay, cool, thanks. But there are those who deny that, who deny the active work of the Spirit. Flip to the other side, there are those whose lives are all about the active work of the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of everything else. They want to see the signs, the wonders, the miracles, all the happenings, the buzz, the excitement. That's what I want. That's what I want to be a part of. Is that going on at this church? Are you guys Spirit-filled? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> What do you mean are we Spirit-filled? How how can you be a believer in Jesus Christ, born again, and not be Spirit-filled? It's kind of a package deal. (laughs) But understand what I'm saying here is signs, wonders, miracles, even the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not the point. They're the means, but they are not the end. The end is Jesus. They are the means of functioning within this world as witnesses. They're the means of working together, ministering in the body of Christ. The vision is Christ. The vision is Jesus, and as we fix our eyes on Him, we shouldn't be surprised, not in the least, as we see signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts taking place. That's all part and parcel of the deal, but it's not the deal. You understand what I'm saying here? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul makes this statement, and I think it encapsulates the kind of life that we're called to live in the Spirit with revelation. He says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And to deny the Spirit, to quench the Spirit, by disbelief, It denies the glory which needs to go to the Father and instead begins begins to place all the wonders that take place in the church on men. And I'll say this that I've said before, in this church fellowship, any good thing that has ever happened or will ever happen is not because of the leadership here. Wonderful men though they are, it is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and His work among us. And so we can always praise and glorify God for what He is doing, not for what we are doing for Him. Revelation. The hand of the Lord. May the hand of the Lord be upon you all. Amen. And me. And may we have heavenly vision.
There's one more thing I want to tell you. Why at the river Kabar? Why does the vision come there? At an agricultural canal, it just seems like an awfully common place for this vision to take place, this most heavenly of Hebrew visions to happen. And it's because Ezekiel could do something that Daniel could not do. It's because Ezekiel could do something that Jeremiah could not do. And not because of their gifts or abilities, but because of their placement. So we have preparation, revelation. The third aspect of living a visionary life is location. 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 He says in verse 2, on the fifth of the month and the fifth of the year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Back a little bit further. In verse 1, While I was by the river Kabar among the exiles... Among the exiles. Jeremiah was located in Judah at this time. And with the exception of a single letter that we know about, Jeremiah had little or no influence on the exiles. He wasn't there. He was back home. And so Jeremiah could not have the kind of influence Ezekiel had. Daniel was there in Babylon, but Daniel was located in the palaces of Babylon. Daniel's ministry was to the ruling class. Daniel in speaking, and it's perfect, in talking about the kingdom of the Lord, Daniel was the prophet to kings. Daniel dealt with the royals, as it were. Ezekiel was of the three, the one who was among the exiles. Among the exiles. This is a key word in the book of Ezekiel, the word among. It may itself seem a common word, tavek, in the Hebrew. But Ezekiel uses this word more than all of the other Bible prophets combined. 116 times he uses the word Tavek in the book of Ezekiel. Constantly talking about either himself or something that is among. Among, among, in the middle of, in the center of. Ezekiel 5.5, one example. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center, Tavek, of the nations. With lands all around her. We'll talk about that more next week. Maybe. Ezekiel 37.28 And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Tavet. When my sanctuary is there. And God uses that really difficult word forever. (coughs) Has God's sanctuary been in the midst of the Jewish people forever? Yet? No. His sanctuary was there. But during Ezekiel's ministry in Babylon, back in Judah, his sanctuary burned to the ground. His sanctuary was built yet again and was among in the midst of the people. But then the emperor of Rome, since Titus, he comes in, conquers Jerusalem, A.D. 70, the temple burns to the ground. Not forever. But God promises, His words, not mine, my sanctuary is in their midst, Tavek, among them forever. And it will be. From the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in the coming kingdom, God has always desired to be Tavek with His people. He has always desired to be among us. In the middle of His people. And so that's where He calls Ezekiel. Smack dab in the middle of the exiles. Why by the river Kabar? Because He was in the midst of His own people, the exiles there. 
And God tags him and says, you're the guy, Ezekiel. And so I ask each of you, what are you in the middle of? What are you among? Where has the Lord placed you? Interesting verse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. That's the uh, marriage chapter, 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking about marriage and he's talking about other issues. And he's talking about if you are in a married state, when you come to the Lord, stay there. If you're in a divorced state, when you come to the Lord, stay there. He says if, if you are in a, a, if you're remarried, stay there. Don't, don't mess with where you are. He even goes further than that. He makes a comment, if you're a slave and you become a follower of Jesus Christ, stay there. But just know this, you're free in Christ. Amen. Are you free? He says, then stay there knowing that you're a slave of Christ. And the whole idea is that we stay in that place. There is something to this. And I was kind of just going over this in my head this last week. And realizing that discontent can cloud vision. Discontent with where you are can cloud your vision. I spent almost four years discontent living up here. I moved up here from Southern California. I was a Southern California dude. I was used to life down there. I liked having everything at my fingertips. Could go anywhere I wanted to go at any time. Everything was available. And then I moved to the north side of Anacortes where nothing was available. You had to drive to Mount Vernon just to go to a... Well, you couldn't even go to Costco then. It wasn't there. You had to go up to Bellingham to go to Costco. And it just drove me nuts. I was discontent. And I came up here with all kinds of vision, and my vision got clouded. Because I wasn't happy being there. I was like, Lord, I'd rather go back down and shake a bake in Southern California and do my thing, you know, with my peeps. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm in this different place, and I wasn't seeing. And you know what lifted the cloud for me? This fellowship. The call to this church. A whole new vision that I wasn't expecting here by the river or by the Puget Sound. My river Kabar, Whidbey Island. Who would have thought? What's your river Kabar? Who are you among right now? We have such an, a, a tendency as human beings to look beyond, to see the next, or to say, I, I, Lord, I could do so much for you. If only I could be there. Location is part of revelation. It is part of vision. God has placed you in this place, in this time, right now. Whether He has somewhere else for you to go. And a lot of you military folks, you know this. You come and you go. And that's kind of part of the deal. Be content with that. Be content to be by the river that He has set you by at that time in your life. If He sends you, be content to go. If He says stay, be content to stay. Because without contentment, we lose vision. We get clouded. We start thinking we're seeing something that perhaps is not the Lord at all. Don't look beyond your station. You see, Daniel's already working up there. And don't long for the old days because Jeremiah, he's at work back there. Stay put. Right in the middle of where God has you. And in so doing, what's remarkable is it actually begins to increase vision as you decrease striving over worldly goals and struggles and difficulties your vision will increase for the heavenly things. But i got to ask you this. How many of you have thought about moving up to Linden? What do you mean by that, Rick? I mean to like a Christian enclave somewhere. 
There are a lot of Christians living in Linden, you know. Praise 106 Radio, up that direction. Uh, a lot of Christian churches and, and a large Christian community up in Linden. And there are times, i got to tell you, honestly, living on Whidbey Island where I think I could just as well leave and go somewhere where there's a bunch of people who think like I think and believe what I believe. I get kind of tired of some of the news that comes out around here. I get kind of tired of Washington politics and and some of the... I won't go into it because I'll just get myself in trouble, but some of the stuff that takes place in this state that is so pagan... And I know 10 years ago I was having that conversation with the Lord. I just want to go where, you know, where there's some stability in Christ and there's still a few believers around. <laughs> there are, I fear. <laughs> I later discovered. But I, I think about, you know, have you ever just thought, I said this to my brother last, last week, we were having breakfast together, and I said, you know what, Ron, there are no more new worlds to sail to. This is it, pilgrims. <laughs> there's nowhere else to go. We can't hop on a ship and sail across the waters to an undiscovered country and, and form like the Puritans a goat for a place where we can just have the freedom to be in Christ. We had that shot 200 years ago and it's not working out so good right now. What are you saying, Rick? Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. God says to Ezekiel there with the exiles, among the exiles, He says, Son of man... You live in the midst, Tavek, of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. And look over at chapter 3, verse 15. (laughs) I love this verse. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kabar at Tel Abib, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. <laughs> I really like that. And I gotta, I'm going to quote you, Barb. There's some Barb sharing with me. Actually, she heard from Brian Young once, having to do with preaching. And he says, you know, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who barks is the one you hit. Right? Well, here... <laughs> Here, no, I'm not calling you pack of dogs. I'm really not. You're an adorable people. Puppies, maybe. How's that? No, he's in the middle of these people and he's causing consternation. And there are times in my life where I'm sitting in the middle of a place that rejects God and I know it causes consternation. And I don't like that. And so I say, God, I would like to move out of here take my vision with me and be in a place where everyone's happy that I'm there. I have yet to find that place. But wouldn't that be nice? Here's the deal. If we are living with heavenly vision, we will cause consternation among the people. You can't help it. Pat and I were talking this morning. Pat, this is kind of the point. She's talking about how in this group that she is in, that she finally one day had to say, you can make fun of me all you want, but don't make fun of my God. And I said, Pat, you're among this group to cause consternation. You are set there to be a problem. (laughs) And I mean that in a good way. Christians understand you cannot stand in a group of non-believers and not make them uncomfortable. 
So make them uncomfortable. Be okay with that. Don't be like them so that it, I, I don't want them, this to be hard for them, so I'm going to do what they do. That's just not good thinking. It is wisdom, it is visionary thinking to say, I'm going to be in Christ wherever I am. And that means if my being in Christ makes you uncomfortable, praise the Lord, maybe that discomfort is going to do something to your heart. Maybe that conviction will then allow you to see Jesus and want Jesus as I know Jesus. If we are living with heavenly vision, we will cause consternation. And I'm sorry, but I'm finally coming to this realization in my life, I think we are supposed to. I think in these last days, I'm going to put it this way, that we are supposed to be a burr in the saddle of sin. We're supposed to make sin uncomfortable for those around us. We are supposed to turn over the tables of transgression, as Jesus did in the temple. That wasn't a comfortable moment. Don't you think a handful of the Jewish businessmen in the temple at the time were going, this guy's got to go. This is no good. We can't have this. It's messing up our business. I think it's our job to disturb depravity. I think our love for Jesus is here partially to upset immorality. And Jesus said in Matthew 10.25, if they've called the head of the house, that is Jesus, if they've called me Beelzebub, (laughs) how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, be who you are in Christ wherever you are, even if it causes consternation by the river Kabar. And as one writer once said years ago, be who you is. Because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea what that means either. No one ever said, speak the gospel so long as it is well received. Jesus just said, speak the gospel. Be the light. By the way, you know what happened to Ezekiel? It's very interesting. The first seven years of his prophetic ministry was judgment. We'll see some of that. The last 15 years was all about restoration and ultimately the millennial kingdom. And we'll see that too. But what's interesting about Ezekiel is he stayed among the people and continued to bring the word and speak the truth and show the glory of God. Ultimately, the exiles started to listen. I credit Ezekiel for men like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua, For those who came back from the exile to the land, I credit Ezekiel and I credit Daniel and perhaps a little Jeremiah mixed in because these men stood among Jeremiah among the people in Judah, Daniel among the royals, and Ezekiel among the exiles and they stood for Christ Jesus and they proclaimed the glory of God. So we are called to do the same thing. Matthew 28.19, Go. Or Bible students, you know, as you go, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And this is where Jesus' ministry is, don't miss this, right here, Jesus among us. Jesus is among us. 
And through the vision of Christ that we have received, the glory of God in the face of Christ, we have had our preparation or our having preparation and revelation in this location. Jesus among us, like Ezekiel, isn't it interesting? Jesus, our high priest, began His ministry when He turned 30. Like Ezekiel, Jesus received His opening vision at a river, actually in a river. Jesus was in the Jordan when the heavens were opened. Matthew 3.16, And He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so once again I'll say it, the vision is the beloved Son. For like Ezekiel, Jesus is among us in the face of Christ. Father, what a vision. The glorious vision of Jesus. You have shown us, Father, by Your Word, the willingness of divinity to be humanity. And so we have that picture, that wonderful picture of the babe in the manger. And You and Your Word show us the young man at the temple who knew things he couldn't possibly have known. And You have shown us the prophet in the Galilee, the healer, the divine and glorious Son, transfigured on the mountain, the One who taught beautiful, pure truth. You've shown us Christ and Him crucified. You have shown us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, as if that weren't enough, Father, You show us through the revelation of John, the glory of the Lord in Christ Jesus, the same Lord that Ezekiel saw so many years before. And I pray, Lord, that this vision, the vision we have of Jesus Christ, the revelation that is within us, would carry us as it carried Ezekiel until you come. In Jesus' name, Amen.